Okay, welcome. All ready to go. Great to have everyone looking in on the Zoom. And uh, welcome those who are watching online, or sorry, who are listening online. And uh, we're doing eternal rewards. And uh, we've been looking at a series on the rewards that uh, Jesus has promised to those who overcome. So many believers understand that uh, we receive the gift of salvation by uh, a free gift, by faith in the work of Christ. But what many believers don't understand is that our life, our service in following the Lord uh, counts for our life in eternity. So it's not just a simple, well, you, you, you follow Jesus, die, go to heaven. It's, not, it's not, not like that. Jesus came not to talk about a message of going to heaven. He talked about a message of uh, being born again and then of a kingdom we come into, a kingdom we participate in, a kingdom with values and a lifestyle and a king that we respond to. And then he talked about the coming kingdom and the rewards for those who, are, who uh, participate with him in this life. And so the teaching on eternal rewards gives us incredible motivation for personal change and for living a focused uh, life of following Christ. So we're going to go through, I want to just start with the introduction. We've already done uh, four sessions around this. And uh, so I'm going to just go back over the introduction again and uh, just touch on it. You'll see it in your notes there. And then we want to get into today's study. Today's study is on the garments of glory and beauty. And you'll see why I name it that when we get shortly uh, into the study. So first thing again, and uh, that is the, by way of introduction, the first thing we want to uh, remind everyone of is that one of the great themes of Jesus' teaching was eternal rewards. He constantly spoke about the life in the kingdom and also about the values of the kingdom. He talked about laying up treasure in heaven. And even that statement there tells us that uh, there's a possibility our actions here result or have a consequence in eternity. And uh, in Matthew 16, 27, he said, The Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels. And here it is. He will reward or recompense or pay what is owing to every man according to his works. And we saw in the study so far that there are many different kinds of rewards. Uh, looking in creation, you see the diversity of creation. You see the variety of God. So therefore, it's obvious that God can reward us in a whole variety of different ways, and particularly in a way that's appropriate for us. You see the diversity in flowers, diversity in all of creation. We understand then it's possible for every one of us to receive a reward that's quite unique to us in our life that we've lived. When we read in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, Jesus is talking to the three, uh, seven churches. They all existed in, in time. They've all gone now. But they're also a prophetic picture of churches in the different age and season of church history. And again, he points out problems in each of the churches and a, he, he lays out a reward for those who overcome. So the implication is if the reward is for those who overcome, those who don't overcome don't receive the reward. Quite simple. To overcome means to conquer something. To overcome means to uh, prevail over an issue uh, that is a cause of stumbling or a difficulty or, or a pressure on your life. To overcome it means uh, I've been able to uh, persevere and subdue that problem. So it means to subdue it. And uh, in 1 John, he tells us this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. So all who are, who are designated overcomers are people who have learned to believe God and and not just a mental ascent, but live it out in the way they tackle the problems that come up on a daily basis. And uh, so we need to be uh, aware of the rewards and their significance. If you don't understand the size of the reward or what's at stake, you won't put value on it. If you don't put value on it, it won't affect how you live your life. When you see 
what is at stake when you look through and study the rewards. You understand Jesus' teaching uh, of the man who uh, saw the treasure in the field and uh, because of the treasure was such a, a big prize to be won, he sold all and bought the field. Also the pearl of great price, he taught that. So he's teaching about the value of what God has prepared for us is so great that it causes people to consider everything else of less value and to put that kingdom of God first. So when we understand what's at stake, we realize that there's a, a reward at stake for each of us. It motivates us then, no matter what our circumstances. And we saw in uh, the scripture in Colossians uh, 3, 22, 23, 24, where Jesus is talking, or Paul's talking to servants or slaves who are badly treated by their masters. And he says, uh, he says obey your masters uh, in the flesh, uh, not with eye service as men pleases, but, uh, from the, but, but, but uh, in sincerity or from your heart uh, because of the fear of God, knowing whatever you do, you do it heartily to the Lord, knowing that of the Lord you'll receive the reward of inheritance because you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you notice there that he talks again, not about trying to address the injustice of the slavery, but learning how to manage yourself in an unjust condition in the world. And then the third thing we looked at was that rewards are not given automatically. Uh, and we touched on that already. They come to those who fulfill certain conditions. And we saw in Revelations 3, to him that overcomes. Him that overcomes will sit on my throne. And John 12, him that serves me, him my father will honor. So we see promises that have conditions. And clearly, uh, it's a just God that would distinguish each believer from the other according to the life they live. So we won't go into it today, but the judgments uh, on sin vary in the level of the person's uh, actions, their motivations, and the light they walked in. So the depths of uh, hell and punishment also vary in level, and the rewards in heaven vary in level. And we saw in the book of Revelation, you can either be seated in the throne with Jesus in a place of close connection and participation in the coming kingdom, in a governing role, a ruling role, a shaping role, a forming role, or you can be around the throne, and uh, that's a quite a different position to be in. And so we saw also that our um, small sacrifices now have a huge, huge recompense. In other words, what God rewards us is out of proportion to what we do. We saw that in Matthew 25, verse 21, where he said to the servant, you are faithful over a few things, I will make you ruler over many things. And uh, well done, you were you're faithful and very little, have authority over 10 cities, it says in Luke 19:17. So notice there, very little, much. Very little, much. Little here, 10 cities. Now you understand what kind of status is involved in the management of 10 cities. That's a very high level of authority and, uh, and uh, responsibility. So he's saying, a faithful now and little, then certainly uh, you'll be given much. So we saw in Hebrews that God is a rewarder. So we looked in at the list of the rewards, and uh, there are so many you can't list them all out, and it take a long list to do that, but we kind of put them under uh, this kind of um, headings because they seem to overlap a little. Uh, eternal, one was eternal intimacy, uh, eternal authority, eternal glory, eternal garments, uh, victor's crowns, honor and praise from God, 
treasure and riches in heaven, and vindication of our life before our enemies. So those were the eight categories I spoke of. In the first studies, we looked at eternal intimacy, eternal authority, eternal glory. Last week, we spoke on the eternal glory, the resurrection and the two resurrections. And I'm going to follow it. Today's one is on eternal garments, but I've kind of relabeled it uh, garments of, of glory and beauty. So that's our focus for today. And the next week we'll look on, pick up the next couple, victors, crowns, and the honor and praise. So let's get into today's study. And uh, so uh, the title again is Garments of Glory and Beauty. So first of all, what are garments of glory and beauty? What's he referring to? So if you want to search the Bible yourself, type in garments or clothed, and then do a search across the Bible of the references to garments or references to clothed. And you'll find there's many, many references. Perhaps the first reference that we would be aware of is in the book of Genesis, where it says Adam and Eve were naked but not ashamed. In other words, they must have been clothed in the glory of God. When they sinned, then they were covered in shame and they went and covered themselves with fig leaves and and hid themselves in the trees. And so we see then God uh, clothing them with animal skins because of their nakedness. And that was a, a picture or prophetic picture of the death of Jesus on the cross, and he would provide for us the covering by faith, the covering of righteousness that we would need. And, uh, and so uh, clearly Adam and Eve had lost the garments of beauty and glory that they were clothed in. Uh, the Bible tells us that about God himself being clothed. And uh, in, for example, in Psalm 104 verse 1, it says he's clothed with honor and majesty. So you've got to get out of thinking naturally. You've got to think uh, of the spiritual realm and, and of great honor, great majesty, great regal garments that Jesus has. In Psalm 104 verse 2, it says he clothes himself with, with uh, light as though it was a garment. So if we were to catch a glimpse of God, then we would see brilliant light. In the New Testament, it tells us he dwells in immortality and light, which no man can see. You know, it would overwhelm him because of our limitations of our flesh. In Psalm 93, it says in verse 1, God is clothed with majesty and strength. And notice it's talking about honor, majesty, light, strength. So these are spiritual things, spiritual realities, but they express themselves in, causing, in, in, in the person having uh, appearing to be clothed uh, in, with substance. Uh, we find the, uh, also other references. We find, uh, for example, the angels. There's a number of references to angels in the Bible. So when angels appeared, we find they generally were clothed in what appeared to be fine linen or white linen. So you remember, when you look at the Old Testament, they describe it through what was familiar in their day. So if the same thing happened today, you'd use a different language to describe it. So for example, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. They all understood bread. There was a culture of bread. So if you were in Asia, you'd say, I am the rice of life. There was a, a use of something they're familiar with. So in the Old Testament, almost all of the pictures relate to what they're familiar with. In the New Testament, then you see it done differently. So in the Old Testament, when they see the glory of the coming kingdom, they often see a temple or a house, and they see it in terms of natural priesthood and so on. But we see the spiritual realities, what those things signify. Okay, uh, so in Ezekiel 10, 1 and 2, uh, angels appear and they're in white linen. Uh, in Daniel chapter 10, verse 5, uh, an angel appeared to, uh, to, um, to Daniel and he was clothed with white, white linen. 
Uh, we see also, I'm going to get back to this in uh, Leviticus 6 verse 6, we find when it comes to the high priest, now the high priest had a particular role in relationship to standing in the presence of God and God gave instructions. So we're going to look at the instructions that were given on the clothing of the high priest and you'll see why shortly. So the high priest and, uh, the, the, and the priesthood, all of the sons who served the high priest, all had to be clothed in white linen. No white linen can't go near the, the, the presence of God. So they were required to function in their priesthood to have white linen. And so every time you see an angel, it's white linen. You'll see later on various occasions of white linen. And uh, every time it's white linen, it's referring to a particular kind of supernatural garment or clothing that represents glory and honor and rank and stature in the coming kingdom. So uh, uh, it, when Jesus was transfigured in Matthew, in Mark chapter 9 and verse 3, it says his robes became brilliant or dazzling white, whiter than anyone could make it. So his garments, when the glory began to manifest, his countenance changed, his body changed, his garments changed, and he appeared in, in white linen, white clothing, which was brilliant white. And so the white garments, white linen, refer to a supernatural clothing, a supernatural garment, which is needed for us to go in and out of heaven and into the earth. So right now, we access heaven only in our spirit by faith. When we have the white garments, when we'll look at further what they mean, uh, we, the, referring to the resurrection body and resurrection glory, then we can access the realm of heaven and also walk in the realm of the earth as well. So at the moment, we can only do that in our spirit. And so by our spiritual senses, we can access the presence of God. In our spirit, we're connected to him. But this is something completely different. This is actually the overwhelming of our body and the clothing with an ability now to literally move in and out of dimensions. And so, right, so let's have a look. A second thing I want to mention then about by way of introduction is the white garments uh, that are referred to are not the same as the free gift of righteousness, the, the white garments. And uh, so, for example, uh, in, Ma in, Ma in Matthew chapter 16, 27, it says, uh, we've saw it before, he will come in the glory of his father with his angels, rewarding each man or every man according to his works. Then Revelation 19, verse 7 and 8 let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him or give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready and to her was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, you notice Jesus says he will reward us at his coming. Now in Revelations 19, it's talking about one of the greatest events that will take place in the future in history, and that's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's when Jesus, the bridegroom, meets with his bride, and it says there, let us be glad and rejoice and give glory to him and give him all the honor. It's his work that's caused this to come about. It's his invitation that made us possible to be there. But notice as it said that the bride was given or was granted to her or this was given to her that she should be arrayed or clothed in wine, fine linen, clean and white. And then it explains exactly what is the construction of that. It says, for the fine linen is the righteous acts, plural, of the saints. So now you see that the righteous acts, we'll have to look at that a little later, righteous acts of uh, uh, us on our earth now are accumulated and result in the clothing with garments of honor in the coming kingdom. The righteous acts. You notice there the acts plural and it's the acts of the saints. 
So this has got nothing to do then, or it, it doesn't refer rather to the work of Christ on the cross. These righteous acts or these garments are an expression of each believer's devotion to Christ and their acts of service. Okay? So you're dealing with two distinct things now, coming to Christ and receiving a clothing of righteous standing before him by his work, and then us, after we've been positioned like that, now responding with love and gratitude and living a life of serving him and honoring him that qualifies us for rewards. It's probably the simplest way I could put it. So our justification, that's right, standing before God is received by faith, and it's based on his work, not on our works. So in Revelation 19, verse 8, it's our works and a reward we receive. In Ephesians 2, 8, where by grace have you been saved through faith. That's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works or not your works, lest anyone should boast. So the scripture, Ephesians 2, 8, is very clear. Our salvation, being born again, coming out of sin and into right standing with God, being clothed with a righteousness, a right standing, that is totally on our trusting that Christ did all of the work necessary for this to happen at the cross. So our standing before God is based upon the work of another. And we must always build from that foundation. What Jesus did on the cross has positioned me now to be a recipient of his blessings and benefits. It says the same thing in Titus 3, verse 4 and 5. Uh, the kindness and love of, our, of God our Savior towards man has appeared, not by works of righteousness we've done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing, regeneration, renewing the Holy Ghost. Notice, not by works of righteousness we have done. So we see there two distinct things. You need to have these very, very clear. We are saved not by our own works. We are saved by solely the work of Jesus Christ by faith alone in his work. All of our standing before God rests totally on his work and our believing that when he died on the sins for our cross on, our, on the cross for our sins, it is enough. It's a complete work, a finished work that enables all our sins to be forgiven and us to have a standing with God. So by faith we have that standing. We have access by faith wherein we stand. It tells us in in, uh, in uh, the book of Ephesians. So so we now. Understand then, we have a standing with God by faith in His work. Now, as a result of His work, now we give evidence that we're in that right standing by loving Him, by serving Him, and by letting Him express His life through us. And then He investigates and checks the quality of those works we do and the motivation of them to see if they qualify for reward. Okay, so there's the understanding. So remember then, bottom line, our salvation depends on faith in His work, a free gift. Our eternal rewards depend on our works, how we live life as a steward, an acknowledgement, a recompense by God, who is a rewarder. So, okay, then who gets the white garments then? Who receives the white garments? And uh, ultimately, all of us will have a resurrection body. But when the Bible is talking about white garments, it primarily uses, it describes it this way. Number one, overcomers receive white garments. Those who overcome an overcomer, uh, is awarded white garments as a prize or an honor for overcoming in life. The implication is, if you don't overcome in life or defeat it in life, you won't qualify for that white garment that's referred to. Here it is, Revelations 3, verse 4 and 5. 
You have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes should be clothed in white garments. I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before the angels. So notice the first thing there, he who overcomes will be clothed in white garments. So what are you currently facing? What issue do you face that you need to overcome? Now, God knows, every one of us, that he knows the details of our life, what we do, our position in life, where we are, what we face, what we, and most of the, the challenges we face are never seen by anyone but God. The giants we face mostly are internal ones. Sometimes they're external, but primarily it's the struggle to overcome being intimidated or set back by life. So number one then, overcomers, those who overcome and prevail receive white garments. Number two, the bride, the lamb's wife, receives white linen garments. We saw that in Revelations 19 verse 8. To her it was granted she be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen are the righteous acts of the saints. It tells us the bride of Christ made herself ready. Now many Christians are not making themselves ready in any kind of way. A lot of Christians are not actually engaged in serving the Lord in any kind of significant way. But it tells us here that the Lamb's wife, those who God selects from among all those who are saved into intimacy with Him, it says very clearly that they have made themselves ready. And notice, they made themselves ready. So that means they took on the responsibility of building a deep intimate life with Jesus and of allowing the life of Jesus to transform their heart and their motives. And uh, because of that, they made themselves ready. And the overflow of that relationship expressed itself in works of service to the Lord. So uh, we see this in many different ways in the Bible. And then uh, verse, uh, the third uh, area, the, the people who are clothed in white uh, linen that the Bible tells us about, uh, they are people from every tribe and every nation. Revelation 7 verse 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, people, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands. So we do understand that there, is, uh, there are two resurrections, the first resurrection, and there must be a second resurrection. In the first resurrection, we've taught that it's a resurrection of reward, and you'll see this as we go through today's study, re-emphasized again. And I'll try to keep re-emphasizing it because it's such an important teaching. And so let's move on then. Uh, then what are the white garments? So firstly, the white garments uh, represent eternal rewards. The white garments return represent eternal rewards. The white garments are supernatural clothing that acknowledge the quality of our love and service for the Lord while we're on earth. And it makes sense if God is a just God who will not only show mercy to people and, and uh, be patient with people and provide grace in the midst of failures, also he wants to be, he is a just God. So there's the two aspects of it. His justice means he will acknowledge what we've done and the life we've lived and respond accordingly. So we saw in Revelations 3, 4, for example, you have a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. They shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. And notice then, walking with Christ in white is a reward for being faithful. And the reason he gives is they are worthy. What does worthy mean? It means having weight, substance, having value. 
It means having uh, merited something. It means deserving acknowledgement. So you understand some people in their relationship and service uh, deserve being acknowledged <laughs> because what they have done has been outstanding in God's eyes. So what he's saying here is that those uh, who walk with, uh, it's, he talks there in this scripture here, they've not defiled their garments. We'll come back to that later. They shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. And uh, so the word, what does the word white mean? The white uh, is used to describe um, purity, but it also describes the dazzling brightness of the garments. So the word white uh, in mean is the word Greek word lukos, L-E-U-K-O-S. It means bright, brilliant, dazzling garments that emanate light. How about that? So most of our garments don't emulate light. <laughs> so he's saying that the garments will be clothed in the garments of glory. They, they actually emanate light from within. So uh, a third thing about those garments is this, is that every person will be clothed uniquely with different uh, degrees of light and brilliance. Every person will be clothed uniquely. They'll have their own degree of light and brilliance that will depend on their rank and stature in the kingdom. So, and you see that naturally too. You go to a, like go to a, uh, say the royal wedding, and then you see everyone there, and you see that they're all positioned in different ranks and places in the in the wedding service, and you notice they're wearing different kinds of clothing, and all of the clothing and whatever they wear reveals something about their rank or about uh, the status the person has, and uh, so it tells in Daniel chapter twelve verse three. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness, who are, in other words, they're evangelists, uh, reach people for Christ, will be like the stars forever and ever and ever. How about that? And in, my, in my, Matthew 13, verse 33, uh, then the righteous, then, that's in the, when the kingdom comes, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 41, there's one glory of the sun, another of the moon, another glory of the stars. And just as one star differs from another in glory, so also is the resurrection of the dead. So I believe that in the coming resurrection, there will be great ranges of degrees of glory that people carry. And it'll be evident in the way you present yourself, in the way you clothe. As we see that even today, you see the way people dress, tell something about them. <laughs> And uh, so it's quite possible, it's not clear, I can't find a scripture for it, quite possible the garments will be diverse and varied depending on what the occasion is. So, so there's just a, an introduction to the garments. Now, one of the things we shared before was that if you want to understand some of these spiritual realities, you've got to go into the Old Testament and have a look at Old Testament, uh, hidden, the hidden prophetic pictures in the Old Testament stories. And when you start to get a hold of this or understand this, you'll realize how amazing the, the Bible is in terms of prophetic pictures of Jesus Christ all the way through the Bible. And you've got to keep looking for him everywhere. So I want to just divert now for a while and talk about the priestly garments, the priestly garments. Why do we want to talk about the priestly garments? Here's why. Uh, uh, there's um, two reasons. Number one, because we are all called to be priests to God. You notice in 1 Peter 2.5, you as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So you notice now God says that we are a 
a holy priesthood. We are a spiritual priesthood. We offer spiritual sacrifices, praise, worship, offerings, honor. There's so many different ways we can honor God and offer something to him. So now in our journey in life, one of the roles every believer has is to be a priest to God. So what, do we, what does a priest do? Priests would stand before God and offer sacrifices. So our first call is to come before God on a daily basis and to praise and worship. That's what priests did. When you have a look at their list of duties, you'll see they had to keep the candle, they had to keep the fire burning, and they had to offer offerings every day. That was their job. Second thing is they stood between God and men to make intercession. They stood between God and men to make intercession. So a second role every believer has as a priest is to be an intercessor, to pray on behalf of others who can't help themselves or in bondage or whatever. And then the third role of a priest was to come from the presence of God to men and to bless them. Isn't that amazing? Well, there's a whole lot could be taught all around just those things there. Uh, how do I develop intimacy? How do I grow in the realm of building the atmosphere of God and accessing his presence? How do I move in intercession? How do I begin to intercede for people? What are the strategies of intercession? And then what is involved in blessing people? So the Bible tells us, for example, in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 7, now the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man for the blessing or benefit of others. So all of us uh, come into the presence of God. We worship, we praise, we build intimacy, we listen to Him, we surrender to Him, He works in our life. We come out of it, we pray for people, we come out of the presence of God, and we're called to bless people. To bless people, you can bless people by serving them, by giving to them, by ministering the gifts of the Spirit to them. Priests bless people. So we're not called to curse people. Even if they are unkind, we're called to bless people. So that's a whole area you could study, is the priesthood and what's involved in the priesthood. I want to just put out this, we're called to be priests to God, and in Revelations 20 verse 5 or 4, it says the overcomers in the first resurrection will be priests and kings to our God, and will rule on earth. So that's why I want to look at the priestly garments, because it's part of who we are, and it's part of what we'll become. Okay, so secondly, the second reason is that the priestly garments in the Old Testament give an insight to how important garments are to God. See, the priestly garments in the Old Testament give us an insight to how important God play or what importance God places on the garments. So you start to read in the Old Testament. As you read, you bear two things in mind, that there's prophetic pictures inside here that refer primarily to Jesus and secondarily to me. So you've got to look at it through that filter, that lens. And so therefore, as you look at the things, you look at the natural and how they're put together and their function, and then you begin to consider what that means for me. That's how you get revelation on these things. So here in Exodus 28, verse 1 to 3, Now take Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as a priest. So notice the first insight then, they're chosen. Second insight, they minister to God. So our first role of a priest is minister to God. And Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And it says, And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. There it is. Garments for glory and beauty refer to the high priest's garments. And, and he said, now this is it. You will speak to all the gifted artisans. You need gifted people to do this. It's not just wrapped together some garments. Whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him that he may minister to me as a priest. Now there's lots of things to see in there. 
So you notice here the purpose then of the priest garments. What are the purpose of the priest garments? Here's the three purposes. Number one, they're, first of all, they're garments of glory and beauty. Garments of glory and beauty. So the first thing is God designed them to show his glory and reflect his beauty. He required these are not just normal clothing. These are garments of great glory and beauty. When people look at them, they'll be stunned. Glory means splendor or honor or majesty. Beauty means glory, highly attractive, like an attribute of God. So that's the first thing for glory and beauty. So then the purpose of those things is that the, the person wearing the garment was clothed with glory and beauty. Secondly, the garments were used to consecrate or set someone apart for a special purpose. They were used for the consecration of the priest. He said, you'll make Aaron's garments to consecrate him. So the second reason we see then of the garments is to set him apart. When you see him in the garments, whoa, that's the priest. He got the special job. Okay? And then thirdly, uh, he said, you'll make uh, consecrate him that he may minister to me as a priest. So those garments are to minister personally to God to enter his presence, engage with him face to face. Enter his presence and engage with him face to face. I want you to keep those three things in mind, that the garments, first of all, are full of glory and full of beauty, that they are an evidence that the person is set apart for a particular service to God, uh, and thirdly, they are given the honor of having access personally into the holiest of holies where the glory of God dwelt, to engage with them face to face. So the first thing then about those garments after those three things is they reflect or they are a prophetic picture of Christ. The Bible says he is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is our high priest. So these reflect then his resurrection glory and beauty, his consecration even now to be a priest unto to God, to act as an intercessor on our behalf, and also to live in the throne room in the presence of God. So after Jesus rose from the dead, he had a glorious resurrection body. He had garments of glory and beauty. They indicated he was set apart. Uh, notice that, that Mary couldn't touch them because he was consecrated, set apart. And he now was to enter the presence of God in the very throne room of God face to face. So, so in order to do that, he required these resurrection bodies, resurrection garments. Okay. So, so then that leads us then to the details of the priest garments. Now, the study of the priesthood is a major study of its own. The study of the garments is a big uh, thing of its own because all of them are full of significance. However, let me just give you a few things. And, uh, we'll, that, and, and remember, each time we look at this, think firstly of Jesus, then begin to think of the sons of God in the glory of God. Okay, so the first thing is the reference to this in Exodus 28. So the, first pl the place you'll find most of the description is in Exodus 28. There's about 43 verses on it. That's a lot of verses. The topic must be important. So God gave exact directions about the design of the priest garments. In other words, you couldn't just make anything. It had been exactly the way God said. And they had distinct parts, trousers, coat, girdle, bonnet, robe, ephod, breastplate, tunic, turban, hat, sash, and crown. They had all the details are there. So if God takes time to put all the details in, yeah. it must be important to him. Yeah. And not only that, he's trying to say that when it comes to our clothing in eternity, every little detail is thought through by God. It's amazing. So let's re read a little bit of it. I'm only going to read three verses. Uh, Exodus 28 verse 4. 
And uh, these are the garments they'll make, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, skillfully woven tunic, a turban, a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons, that he may minister to me as a priest. So God says, this is the beats you've got to make up. This is what it's going to look like. Notice many parts to it. In Exodus 28, verse 42 and 43, you shall make for them linen trousers to cover their nakedness that will reach from the waist to the thighs. They'll be on Aaron and his sons when they come into the tabernacle and meeting, when they come near to the altar to minister in the holy place, that they do not incur iniquity and die. And it shall be a statute forever to him and his descendants after him. And notice, he says, the priest can't come into the presence of God without the garments. You cannot go into the throne room of God in heaven without the linen garments. And so uh, if he was to do that, he would be struck dead immediately. And uh, so notice the garments were made, or the primary garment was made of fine linen, and then all the garments had different colors. And every color has got a significance. So there was gold, there was blue, there was purple, there was scarlet. So you say, so, now I can't go into all of it, but just throw some things. Every color even had got a significant. So consi- what that means is when they use the color, it's used consistently. And it always is referring you to something. So, for example, the uh, color gold, obviously heaven's paved with gold. It refers to the realm of heaven, the realm of eternity. Uh, the, the realm blue also speaks of the Holy Spirit. It speaks of the supernatural realm. The color purple is always a sign of royalty. They clad Jesus in a purple garment, ridiculed him as the king, and the, the scarlet refers to the blood shed on the cross. So the breastplate that they had was worn here. They had a breastplate here, and they had stones on the breastplate. It was worn over the heart, and they had 12 stones, and every one of the stones had the name of one of the tribes. Now, again, the, the significance of it spiritually is quite enormous. I don't want to go into too deep, just, just to throw those things. And then he had on the shoulders, he had also a stone on each shoulder. And on one stone, uh, there was, um, there was tw- uh, six of the tri- uh, half of the tribes, six of the tribes, and the other half, six of the tribes, were, their names were inscribed on the others. And then on, on his forehead then, he had a crown. He had a, a metal plate. And on the metal plate was holiness. It was a gold metal plate, holiness to the Lord. So he had a turban, with a, go- a turban with a gold plate. And on the gold plate, holiness to the Lord. Now, start to begin to think about those things. Once you start to think, then suddenly all kinds of ideas will start to come. So firstly, the breastplate worn over the heart speaks of a transformed heart. The need for the heart to be transformed. And so it says, Aaron shall bear the names of the son of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart when he goes into the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually. So you notice that when we are born again, we have a heart transformation, and that transformation must be ongoing and continuous. Uh, an interesting thing is that uh, on, the, uh, on the breastplate, there were 12 stones representing the, all of the tribes of Israel, one, one stone for each name. And interestingly enough, um, uh, each of the stones, each of the stones represented one tribe and represented a name. Now, interesting, you go through all the names and you find they're all important. So, for example, the first one, the first name is Reuben. And remember, all the names in the Bible are associated with a character and a destiny. So, Reuben, behold a son. So, now the first stone, behold a son. I'm a son of the living God. One of the first things when you're born again, I become a son or a child of the living God. I'm born into a relationship. God is my father. The second one, Simeon. Simeon means a hearkening or listening. 
God has hearkened or listened to me. In other words, sonship means uh, hearing and obeying the voice of God and pleasing him. The third one was Judah. Judah means praise. So sonship means we constantly live a life of gratitude and thanksgiving and praise to our father. So all of the stones refer not just to the tribes of Israel, but each tribe had a name and they refer some aspect of our sonship before God. So just those things alone, you could study them and you have to, some are easier to see than others, and, uh, but they all tell something about our sonship. The second was he had memorial stones. So the first was one over the heart. The second he had two stones, one on each shoulder. And when, when you talk about the shoulder, it says, uh, I mean, you look at other places in the Bible. You, you first of all think, what does that look like naturally? And, and secondly, is there any mention of it in the Bible? So here's what it looks like. Naturally, we shoulder responsibility. So therefore, the names on the shoulder refers to responsibility as a son. So firstly, I need a heart change as a son. Secondly, I must carry responsibility as a son. Sons are responsible to represent their father and extend the father's name and house. And so worn on the shoulders, in Isaiah 9 verse 11, it says, the government shall be on his shoulders. So as a son, uh, as a priest to God now, I now have a transformed heart and many aspects of sonship are written by the Holy Spirit on my heart. I need to grow into all of them. Two, I now have responsibilities as a son and uh, in my responsibilities as a son, I must learn how to represent God and exercise authority on his behalf. And then notice the finally the gold crown, which was worn on the, on the forehead. So again, think of that. Gold has to do with divine or heaven or God. Uh, it's worn on the head or the forehead, which is refers to the mind, the way you think. So it talks about the mind of Christ. So the gold there means that we have the mind of Christ or wearing the gold. And notice the statement it had on it was holiness to the Lord. So part of our journey as a priest is the ongoing transformation of our heart. Part of our journey as a priest is that we take responsibility for working with God and serving him and advancing his kingdom. Part of our responsibility as a priest is to have our mind renewed. So we're constantly being renewing our mind and being transformed. So every aspect represents an aspect of Christ and an aspect of what it means to be a son or a child of God. So only the overcomers receive those priestly garments of glory and beauty. And we saw in Revelations 3, 5, he who overcomes should be clothed in white garments. So, so where you look in the Bible, you'll find pictures that you can just draw out and suddenly they show you things that it's not easy to explain in the New Testament. So you've got to go back to the old to have a look at it. So uh, the next thing I want to look at in relationship to the priesthood is that there was a a change made in the priesthood. In other words, God changed his mind. Now, why, when God changed his mind, there's got to be a good reason for it. So I want to then go on and now have a look at then the change that took place in the priesthood. There is a change that at one point, uh, the Le Levites were all the priests. Uh, sorry. And the first situation was that God wanted all to be priests. So in Exodus 19, he called everyone to be priests to him. However, because the people fell into idolatry, he said, okay, I'll limit it to the tribe of Levi. And then later on, he changed it from Levi to Judah. Okay, so I want to have a look at that transition because there's always a reason for it. So remember Exodus 19, uh, he called them all to be a kingdom or a, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, but because of their uh, idolatry, he narrowed it down to the tribe of Levi and they had an eternal priesthood 
and then he made a change. And I want to look into why he made the change, because what it means very simply is that the people who were operating in the priesthood didn't qualify, and the priesthood went to someone who did qualify. And I want to ask the question, why did they not qualify? What caused them to be disqualified and lose their priesthood, their access to God, and what caused the other ones to be qualified? You see how you've got to ask questions of it when, you, when you're looking at these things. So there are two priesthoods that are mentioned in the Bible, two priesthoods that are mentioned. One is uh, the Levitical priesthood. They descend from Aaron, Aaron and his descendants. The second one that's mentioned is called the Melchizedek priesthood, Melchizedek priesthood, which uh, is the priesthood associated with Jesus' ministry. Okay, firstly, the Levitical priest. So we saw before that everyone was called to be a priest however the majority of people didn't want to go near god they wanted someone to go to god on their behalf and so they uh they fell into idolatry and then it set on the, the levitical priesthood so the levitical priests were chosen to minister the old covenant they were all descendants of aaron they were all descendants of aaron so the levitical priesthood represents the old covenant, it represents the law. Under the law, I had to do things to walk with God. And so it says uh, uh, concerning Levi that Levi was quite violent and cruel and came under a curse. Genesis 49.5, Simeon and Levi are brothers, instrument of cruelty in their dwelling place. So the Levitical priesthood was replaced by another order, the Melchizedek priesthood, Melchizedek priesthood are chosen to minister the new covenant, the things of the spirit. So two priesthood, the priesthood of the law. So you're operating under law, under rules, the priesthood of the New Testament, which is under Melchizedek, and it is operating in the spirit. The letter of the law kills, the spirit gives life. Two kinds of priesthoods. Levitical, the old covenant, Old Testament law, the New Testament which is all to do with the spirit of life. So we're called to be ministers of the spirit. The spirit will always bring life. The interesting thing about the Levitical priesthood was <clears throat> every now and then the chief priest would die and they would have to find another one. And that's when they ran into their troubles. With the Melchizedek priesthood, it comes from Jesus who never dies, therefore it never changes. We just got one guy in charge and he's our high priest forever. So there's many different things in it. I'll try to keep it. Uh, without getting in too deep. So uh, the Levit Levitical priesthood has been replaced, and it's been replaced by the Melchizedek priesthood. We read that in Hebrews 7, 11 to 13. And uh, so the, the Melchizedek order of priesthood has replaced the Levitical priesthood. That means it's taken over all of their roles. So how did the Levitical priesthood, why did it get replaced? Why did they let it go? Why did God change his mind about this group? There's, there's always a reason. God appointed them initially because Aaron was sent to work with Moses in terms of delivering the people of uh, God out of Egypt. And then after Aaron, Aaron and his sons were supposed to be priests. Then their descendants were supposed to be priests. But at some point, there was someone really blew it big time. And as a result of what he did and what his sons did, God said, I will take the priesthood off you and give it to a faithful priesthood. And he's referring to Jesus Christ. So he's saying, the old covenant will come to an end. I'm going to introduce a new covenant. A new covenant will have a new priest. See? Now, to, in order to see the transition from the old covenant under the law 
to the new covenant of the Spirit, you've got to look to some people. So no picture in the Bible is perfect, but you'll see the transition. So let me talk about the transition and then why, because what I want you to see is the why it took place. There are many reasons, but I want to show you one reason particularly important. So um, Levi and the priesthood of Levi was replaced by Melchizedek or, the, or the, uh, by Zadok. Zadok, Z-A-D-O-K. So let me just show you this in, um, in the Bible. 1 Samuel 2, verse 35. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what's in my heart and my mind. I will build him a sure house. He will walk before my anointed forever. So Eli was replaced. And I want to know why. We're going to get to why in a moment. Eli was replaced by Eliezer. He was replaced by Abiathar. And then when it came to King Solomon and the coming millennial rule, he replaced the priesthood and put another one in. So the millennial rule has a different priesthood. Now, so why did he put Zadok in there? And why is it that Levi forfeited there? So let's first of all look at why Levi, the sons of Levi, lost their priesthood. Now, it all goes back to a, um, a man called Eli. And he's found in the first book of Samuel, in the first few chapters. Eli was the high priest and God was planning a massive change and so he raised up Samuel and Samuel of course became the prophet and priest to the nation. And so what happened was that, um, we'll read 1 Samuel 2 verse 29 and 30 and I encourage you to read the story yourself. What was happening was Eli's sons, Eli was old, Eli was blind, had no vision, Eli was very heavy, big fat man. And what happens was his sons, who were also the priests, were stealing the best offerings for themselves. And they were also being involved in sexual immorality with the woman who came to worship. That's what was going on. And so God spoke to Eli and said this, Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling, and you honor your sons more than me to make yourselves fat with the best of the offerings? And then he said, Therefore the Lord of God of Israel says, I said indeed your house and the house of your father would walk with me forever. In other words, this was going to be a forever job. But now it's far from me. Those who honor me I will honor. Those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. And so he then lays out exactly what's going to happen. He said in your family, he puts a curse on him. He says in your family, no one will ever get old. They'll all die prematurely. And he said, here's a sign for you. On one day, both of your sons will die. And so on one day, both of the sons died in the battle. And the news came back to Eli. And it was such a shock for him that the sons had died and the ark had been captured that he fell over and broke his neck. And uh, there's symbolism in all of these things. So, but the key thing in here was there was a lack of relationship with God. So here's the reasons they forfeited the priesthood. The bottom line is summed up like this. Now get this, it's really important. They dishonored God and they honored themselves. Wow. They dishonored God and they honored themselves. That was why they forfeited their priesthood. Now, so in any priesthood, which includes us, any leadership, any kind of ministry, if we dishonor God in our actions, oh, you need some more. If you, if you dishonor God and honor yourself, you will forfeit your priesthood in eternity. Very, very serious. It's a huge issue, this. 
So there were three things that characterized, God called it, they dishonored me. Why do your sons honor? And he said to Eli, you honor your sons more than me. You make yourselves fat with all the best of the offerings. So read the story. Here's, there were three things that are identified. It's in number one. Uh, here's the first reason they lost it. Lack of intimate relationship with the Lord. It says they were sons of Bilal. They did not know the Lord. Now, it seems crazy. Here they are. They're serving in the tabernacle. They're serving all the things of God. They're fully involved in the religious system. Yet there's no intimacy or relationship with the Lord. So it's a very strong picture of people who have no ongoing personal relationship with the Lord. They're just fulfilling religious roles, religious duties. No relationship with the Lord and, and as a result, no respect or honor for Him. <laughs> no respect, no honor. Now the issue of honoring God is a crucial one. He said, if I be in Malachi 1, when he's talking to the priesthood, he said, uh, he said, sons honor their father and servants honor their master. If I be a father, where's my honor? If I be a master, where's my respect? And he said, well, you guys just disrespect me, dishonor. He said, and they said, how do we do that? He said, in the offerings, because you bring the weak and the blind and the sick. So you've got to remember that when we come, whether our giving is financial, whether our giving is praise and worship, the core of it is mm -hmm. we must respect and honor the one we're coming to and give him the honor, give him the best, not give him something half-hearted, not give him something which is uh, unsatisfactory to him. In, in, in challenging the, uh, in Malachi 1, he says, try pulling that stunt with the leader of the nation and see if he'll be happy with it. He says, I'm a great king. Don't bring your half-hearted, blind, sick sheep and offer them to me and say you're doing a good thing. He said, he said what you're giving reflects a heart that dishonors and despises me. Now, this is a crucial reason that the sons of Levi lost their priesthood and it also leads us to why someone else got it. Okay? So there's a second reason. Second reason they lost it. It's all to do with dishonoring God and honoring themselves. The second one was selfish ambition and self-promotion. Selfish ambition and self-promotion. Ambition and self-promotion. What do they mean by that? Well, what they do, just you've got to think what they did. Well, people came and people wanted to worship God. They wanted to honor God. So they came and they bought their offering and their offerings, depending on what they're able to give, uh, it's not important how much you can give. It's the heart that's behind it that counts. And so they came and they gave. And the, these sons would see what these people have and they'd take the best for themselves. So in other words, they exploited the giving to make themselves prosper. Mm. Now this goes on a lot in the church today. Thankfully it doesn't take place in where we are. We've got great leaders who honor God and would never think to uh, use God's resources and God's people to further their own ends. But this is what they're saying they did. So they dishonored God, they took the best for themselves and they used their position to, to advance themselves. And this happens. And of course, this is one of the great scandals in the American church right now of the exploiting of the things of God to take money off people, offering them false hopes. The, second, the third thing that they did was immorality, sexual immorality. 
They dishonored God by violating the woman who came to worship. Or putting it another way, they abused their position of power. They abused their position of power. So having been given responsibility and power, they hurt the people that were under their care. And God saw it and called them all to account and they lost the priesthood. Not just them, but all the future generations lost it. It's just incredibly serious. It's very, so I mean, there's a whole study around all of that. But I just want you to see that there's a shift between the old covenant and the new, and there's a reason for the shift. And the shift is the failure to honor God, the, in fact, the dishonoring Him and exploiting the role in ministry for their own ends and own purposes. And so the change in, uh, the change in that priesthood means the loss of millennial inheritance of that priesthood. So God, the Bible uses the story of Eli and Zadok as a prophetic picture of the priesthood and the millennial rage. So the place you start to find Zadok, you find Zadok mentioned in a couple of places. We find him mentioned, of course, in 1 Kings 2 verse 35, when Solomon became the king, he put then Zadok as priest in the place of Abiathar. So that's when Zadok came in. Now, I encourage you to read around there. There was a lot of skullduggery going on, but Zadok remained faithful to God's appointed king. So in other words, you notice in the Old Testament, in the story of Eli's sons, they dishonored God. They dishonored God as their king. They dishonored God in their offerings and their morality, their life, their attitudes, everything. And then Zadok, he honored God and honored God's selection. So now the Bible talks about the transition and it, it starts to then talk about the millennial uh, impact of this. And so when we go to Ezekiel 44, I can't do it all, but i just do a little bit of it. So you, and I want you to see the prophetic picture in here as well. So in the Old Testament, they had a natural temple and they had natural sacrifices. So when he's describing what he sees, he's describing it through the natural. You've really got to see beyond that to the supernatural. Ezekiel 44.10, the Levites who went far from me when Israel went astray and who strayed from me after the idols shall bear their iniquity. Yet in spite of this, and he's saying there's consequences for holding idols in your heart. They shall be ministers in my sanctuary as gatekeepers of the house and ministers of the house. They shall slay the burnt offering and sacrifice for the people. They'll stand before them to minister to them. Because they ministered to them before their idols and caused the house of Israel to fall in iniquity, I've raised my hand against them, said the Lord, and they shall bear their iniquity. And here's what he says in verse 43. They will not come near to me to minister to me as a priest. They'll not come near to my holy things. They'll not come near to the most holy place. They will carry the shame of their, their conduct. Nevertheless, they still work in the temple. So what is he saying then with the sons of Levi? He's, he's saying then in the coming millennium kingdom, this is what will happen. They will not receive a glorified resurrected body that can go backwards and forwards between heaven and earth. That's the body Jesus had. So the cost to any believer of dishonoring God and not being faithful in their priesthood to him is they will not receive that glorified resurrected body. They'll not be able to pass back and forth between heaven and earth, just as Jesus was able to do. They will not have access into the throne of God. They will not reign with him on earth. And they'll have a limited role serving in the earthly realm. They'll have a role serving in the church, but they will not have the realm of being able to move and enter into the very throne room of God and bring the supernatural life and power of God in a massive way back into the earth. 
So they represent believers who are legalistic. There's no transformation. They dishonor God. That word, uh, me, I got this thing in there wrong. Dishonor God. It's not, it is honor God. It was dishonor God. They dishonor God and they've refused heart transformation. I, re, I see a lot of people like that. Legalistic people dishonoring to God in the way they conduct themselves and not letting God into their heart to bring about transformation. And it says, they'll not come near to me to minister to me as a priest. They'll not come near any of my holy things. They'll not enter the holy place. So the language he's using is the language of the temple. There was a holy place where the glory of God dwelt. And what he's saying is, the priests go in there and then they come out. He said, these guys will not be allowed in there to me. They'll be not allowed near me. They'll not come into the glory. They'll not come into the resurrection. They'll not come into ruling and reigning. They will have to stand at the outside. That's a t very serious loss. And so um, we understand then that when the Bible's talking about inheritance, the inheritance of the priests was God himself. In Numbers 18 verse 20, the Lord said to Aaron, You'll have no inheritance in the land. You'll have no portion with them. I'm your portion. I am your inheritance. To inherit God means I receive that first resurrection glorified body, and it means I have face-to-face -face access to God. So you so imagine that. God is my inheritance. That's why nothing you've got on earth can hold us. There's nothing you can be attached to compared to loving him and knowing him and having him as your inheritance, access to him. It, you know, it's like... If you have the money, then the money runs out. If you have the source, you've got an endless supply. You've got to put your eyes on the source. And so he's saying that to be faithful as a priest means access into the very glorious presence of God's throne and fellowship and friendship with him. To not be faithful as a priest now disqualifies you from that. The loss is enormous. And so he said then of the sons of Zadok, now this is what he says to them, they were faithful when there was the transition of power from David to Solomon. They remained faithful to God and faithful to God's calling. And uh, it says, this is it, in Ezekiel 44, 5, the priests, the Levites, the sons of Zadok, who kept the charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray, they will come near to me to minister to me. They will stand before me. They will offer me the fat and the blood. They will enter my sanctuary. They'll come near my table and minister to me. They will keep my charge. See what he's saying? That now he's using Old Testament language to say, these people, they fail to honor me. They fail to keep the responsibilities of priesthood. I will not let them near me. I will not let them access into my holiest of holies. I will not let them fellowship with me closely and intimately. They will stay at a distance and they'll have a, a, an inferior role. He said, the sons of Zadok, they were faithful. They will come near to me. They will minister to me. They will dine at my table. They will have friendship and fellowship with me. Now notice what else it says here. And here's where we get the garments. Verse 17. Whenever they enter the gates of the inner court, they shall put on linen garments. No wool shall come upon them while they minister within the gates of the inner court. They'll have linen turbans on their head, linen trousers on their bodies. They'll not clothe themselves with anything causing sweat. When they go to the outer court where the people are, they'll take off those linen garments and leave them in the holy chambers. They'll put on other garments and then they'll go out to them. Now, what is he saying here? He's, saying, he's talking about the resurrection body. He's saying that the priesthood of Zadok, he said, I will give them garments of glory, garments of beauty, 
and they will enter my presence because of that. And when they're in my presence, they will be in that glorified state. But when they leave that and go out to people, they'll just look like they're normal again. Amazing, isn't it? The, the, the garments of linen are the garments God provides. The garments of wool are, of course, sweat. They're anything, they're anything about the flesh or effort, self-effort. So he says, so he's using a language of the spirit. He's using prophetic picture language to describe two kinds of people. Those who will come not loud near him, those who will not have intimacy, those who will not enter into his glory, those who will not approach the throne, those who will not be able to come anywhere near to him, but they'll be, in the, they'll be still his people and have a role to serve as against those who are faithful and they enter his presence, they come near to him, they fellowship with him, he empowers them, they're given a resurrection body, enables them to enter, and then when they go out, they're like Jesus, they appear in an ordinary body. Now, we, we saw then that the, the, the linen there represents the glorious resurrected body and the garments the overcomers will receive. So those who are called to be priests to God and are faithful, they will be given those overcome, they'll be given those garments, they'll have access. So they'll put on those garments to enter his throne room. Now at the moment you can't do it. See, you can't go into the throne room. You can go by the spirit. You can you can go in your spirit. You can access God in his presence, but by your spirit and spiritual senses. But right now your physical body is earthbound. But he's talking about clothing given to us, a new body that enables you to access like that into heaven and then walk out and be in the earth. To manifest in glory and in the presence of God, then walk out and be in the earth and go anywhere. It's extraordinary. It's all, and that's exactly what Jesus did. So Jesus did exactly this thing after the resurrection. In, in Luke 24, he said, As they said these things, Jesus stood in the midst and said, Peace be to you. And everyone was afraid and frightened because they supposed they'd seen a spirit. He said, Why are you troubled? Why, doubts, why do doubts arise in your heart? Look, here's my hands and my feet. See, touch, handle, see. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones like you see. And as he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And notice there that Jesus could suddenly appear and looks like he's got a normal body like ours and then vanish and he's into the glory realm, into the realm of heaven. That is what this thing is talking about. That is what you stand to have or miss. That is the reward. And what do the sons of Dadoc do? In Ezekiel 44, 23 and 24, they'll teach my people the difference between the holy and the unholy, that does discern between the clean and the unclean, and in controversy they'll stand as judges. Now, I won't go into that. It's just it's evident of its own that those who have this priesthood will be able to manifest anywhere. They'll have responsibilities to teach people, instruct people, train them in the ways of God, and also to stand in controversy and have the power to bring an, a, 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 an answer and resolution to it. So that brings us then to Jesus, then his, his, um, his warning and his counsel about garments. His warning and his counsel about garments. I'll just get through this and then we're nearly at the end. So um, let's, let's have a look at a Jesus' warning and counsel. For, first of all, he's warning. Now he warns of um, uh, two conditions. Uh, and uh, here's what the warnings are. Number one, no garments at all. <laughs> and number two, defiled garments. So we need to understand what those are. Revelation 3.17 He's talking to Laodicean church, which was uh, very self-satisfied, very lukewarm. He said, now you say I'm rich, I have become wealthy, I have need of nothing, but you don't realize you're wretched, poor, miserable, uh, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. You may be rich to buy white garments. You may be clothed and the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eyesight that you may see. So notice there, Jesus is talking to the church. He says, number one, you say you have need of nothing. That means you're lukewarm, there's pride, 
and you're blind. You can't see your true condition. Number two, he said your true condition is you're naked. That means you are exposed in your lifestyle. And uh, so he says in Revelation 16, 15, I come as a thief in the night. Blessed are those who watch us and keep his garments, lest he be naked. Now remember, to keep your garments meant you stay connected, intimate relationship with Jesus, and you produce fruit in your life as a result of it. Your, your life demonstrates fruit. And uh, so there's many scriptures on that. Uh, for example, 1 John 2.28, he says, Abide in him, in other words, stay intimate with Jesus, so we may not be ashamed before him at his coming and be confident. Uh, Titus 3.8, it tells us to be careful to maintain good works. So notice then uh, that all of us are to keep our garments. What does that mean? Or putting it very simply, I need to maintain an intimate, passionate love relationship with Jesus. I need to let him transform my heart and I need to be actively involved in serving in some way. I need to produce works. And we saw when it comes to sonship that these are the three major roles of sons, intimacy with God, transformation of the heart, and doing things, acts of service, extending his kingdom. So, so Jesus warned about not having garment on. So he's not talking about being saved. He's talking about make sure when he comes, you're not a slacker. You're not lukewarm and you're not hanging around being idle. He said, make sure that your heart is on fire, that your in vital intimate relationship and that you're very busy advancing his kingdom. There's nothing more clear than that. Very, very clear. And uh, so then uh, the second warning Jesus gave was about having defiled garments. Revelation 3, 4, you have a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. So that tells us we can defile the garments. So if the garments are acts of righteousness that we do, or in other words, it's the life we're living and what we're doing, then they can be defiled. So then the question, the question what can, he says, what, he asks the question, well, how could they be defiled? So Jesus checks our garments. So he said, he said, you have a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. They will walk with me in white for they are worthy. Now notice they didn't defile their garments. So what does that mean? It means firstly, worthy means to be deserving of praise, to be deserving of honor. They said they are worthy. So Jesus then will check our garments, our actions, to see are they defiled? Are they worthy of close companionship and reward? quite simple isn't it he checks you out if your garments are dirty and notice using spiritual language dirty garments can't get in clean garments you're in simple as that so he said don't get you don't lay your garments to be defiled so it doesn't mean to be defiled it means to be polluted or stained or contaminated that means something inferior was added to it that changed its quality so clean garment means clean heart and pure motives when you do things. <laughs> this is very simple. Clean garments, clean heart, you're operating out of love, or put it another way, there are no hidden genders with what you do. You're doing things because you love the Lord, you're doing them out of love. These are, these are works flowing out of faith and love. There's no personal agenda. So what defiles our garments is hidden selfish agendas. So you can really boil it quite down simply. He looks to check your life. Are you passionately in love with him? Are you overflowing and representing him and showing what he's like with selfish acts of love, selfless acts of love? 
So, and Jesus talked about the number of ways. He said, love your enemies, do good, hope for nothing in return, and your reward be great, and you'll be sons of, your most high, of the Most High, if he's kind to the thank, unthankful and evil. Blessed are the pure in heart, they'll see God. So, so you see the theme of his teaching is really simple, and it's not complex. It really comes down to simply this. Stay on fire and in love with Jesus, keep your heart pure, and abound in good works. And so you notice why he's caning the Laodicean church, because he said, you, you, you're proud and you think you're doing well, you've got big buildings, a lot of money, and all these people and whatever, but actually the whole thing's lukewarm and it's tainted and stained. It's not acceptable. So, uh, so Jesus' counsel then, of course, is to buy of me white garments. Revelation 3.18, I counsel you. This is my advice. This is Jesus' advice. Buy gold refined in the wire so you can be rich. Buy white garments that you may be clothed and the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. And so, so remember, the garments then are the righteous acts of the saints. The accumulation of what we do clothes us for the coming and glory. Notice his counsel, buy of me. Now, let me give you three simple things in here. Number one, buy of me means he's the source. What, what, what you're going to have to do can only come from him. You can't get it from me. You can only get it from God. Remember the foolish virgins didn't pay the price. So buying of me means Jesus is the source. I've got to get engaged with him to get what's needed. Number two, buy means I have to pay a price. There's a cost of getting this gold refined in the fire, whatever that is. So uh, essentially, here's the bottom line for it. There's a price to following Jesus. There's a price in walking with him. So what is the gold refined by the fire? Uh, 1 Peter describes it in, in chapter 1, verse 6. He said, Now you, re you greatly rejoice, though for now for a little while, if need be, you're grieved by the various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith may be being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by the fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, Having not seen him, yet you love him. Now, though you don't see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy and exceedingly full of glory. So notice he uses here just a simple picture, gold. Gold needs to be refined. How do you refine gold so it becomes pure and its value increases? You've got nine carat gold. Here, the ring, nine carat gold. That coin on the ring, that's 22 carat gold. Which is more valuable? 22 carat gold. What's the difference? The refining. So what is gold that's refined? Gold refined means it was put through fire that was just enough to melt it, not consume it. And when it melts, the impurities surface and they're skimmed off by the refiner. Okay, that's gold. Now your faith. Your faith is what pleases God. Your faith is about trusting him, believing his word. So what is gold refined in the fire? Gold goes, gold goes through a process where the refiner puts heat onto it till it melts, skims it off, lets it cool, and it's now refined, and he keeps doing it till it's pure. Faith. I believe God. I trust God. I start to act on what he says. Then pressure and resistance and opposition comes, and I persevere until my heart motives are pure, and I come out of it now, and my faith and love have been tested by the fire. Really quite simple. And so um, it, faith is refined and becomes authentic when you hold on to God's word and trust him in the face of opposition, hostility, difficulties, delays, 
contrary circumstances, resistance by people that you thought would love you. So faith that's refined means you're not just doing things, but you're experiencing reactions, hostility, difficulties, pressures, because you're following Jesus. And he said he watches how you respond. And if you hold on to him and his word, when everything is turning to custard, it's difficult, it's hard, people around you walk away or accuse you or blame you or do this or that, if you keep holding on to him and trusting him, your faith is refined, your character becomes different, and you become like gold refined in the fire. So he said, I counsel you, buy from me gold refined in the fire. This thing can only come from God. So every one of us goes through fiery trials. There's no one doesn't. The moment you step out to follow the Lord and trust him, you will go through fiery trials. And God watches it. And he said that this trying of your trust in him is more precious to him than gold that's been found in the fire. He said he uses the two to come, that they're like one another. So he said, you want gold that's valuable gold needs to be refined. What God's looking for is your faith because that's what pleases him. Your faith is refined when you face hardship, difficulties, opposition, persecution, yet you hold on to God and keep your heart right. Then your faith becomes refined. Your character begins to change. There's a depth in you and a substance in you. You think of the many Christians you know that come along, they'll hear a message, get excited, and a bit of pressure comes, they fold. They didn't have their faith refined by the fire. It will always come. Jesus said in his parable in Matthew 13, which is the fundamental parable of the sower and the seed, several things will happen when you receive the word of God. First, the devil will try and take it away from you. You've got to hold it. Secondly, the sun will come up. You've got to be able to stand up to the sun and the heat. Thirdly, he said, the thorns and the thistles are going to come. And he said, they'll grow up. Other things will get distract you and take you away. He said, you've got to overcome those distractions and stay focused. He said, finally, you bring forth fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100. So he uses that parable to say, this is how he works. So it doesn't matter what role or function in the church. That's irrelevant and important. That's unique to every one of us. What does matter is your personal relationship and how you conduct yourself when pressure comes on you. This is what qualifies or disqualifies you. And everyone has their trials which are private, personal, no one can go through them but you. God's watching every one of those things. He sees how you respond and you are either growing in your character in patience, endurance, and love, the fruit of the Spirit, the character of God, or this thing's coming up. Your garments are defiled. Yeah, I was doing these things, but I had an agenda. Yeah, I'm doing these things, but I was angry. I'm doing these things, but I was bitter and resentful. I'm doing these things, I want to impress people. You understand? And so God has to take us through that process. Mm -hmm. And if we respond to that process, we become a priesthood which have qualified for garments of glory and garments of beauty, access into the realm of heaven and earth and into the coming kingdom. It's an incredible opportunity, incredible privilege. And you see it described there under the picture of garments of glory, garments of beauty of the priesthood. There you go. Right. Awesome.